Greetings, friends, and welcome to Building Tradition, where we tell stories from designers, builders, and artisans. I'm your host, Pete Miller. We're joined today by artisans because they write and design and publish magazines. Clem Labine and Patty Poor are the founders and editors of Old House Journal Magazine, which is a sibling publication of traditional building. Old House Journal celebrates its 50th year in 2023. So we're using that occasion to reminisce and to talk to the people who are responsible for launching the magazine in 1973 and bringing it forward to today. Welcome, Patty. Welcome, Clem. Hi, Pete. Good to be here, Pete. So Clem has since retired. Patty is still at the helm of Old House Journal. But let's look back at 1973, Clem's Brooklyn, New York, brownstone kitchen table where he launched Old House Journal. What were those early issues like and how were they produced? Well, up until 1973, I had a real job at uh, McGraw-Hill editing uh, chemical engineering magazine. I then got launched into this adventure of buying an 1883 brownstone in Brooklyn, which was a, a run-down wreck, and uh, face the problem of what to do with it. It ended up changing my life entirely. It's hard to imagine how people uh, thought about Victorian houses in 1973. Victorian was term of opprobrium. It was, uh, if it wasn't colonial, it wasn't worth a dime. And uh, I had an old Victorian house and I didn't want to remodel it. I didn't want to convert it to a cheerful contemporary house, which is what all the, the home magazines were telling me I should do. I just wanted to put the thing back the way it was in 1883. And there was nothing that I could find in the literature to tell me how to do it. So I just started a a painful process of self-education. Little by little, I began to realize there were a few other people, both in Brooklyn and in other parts of the United States, who also had old houses and were in sort of a similar quandary. And uh, it occurred to me that, well, maybe there was a niche for a inexpensive newsletter that could provide a forum for people who were stuck with these old houses and didn't know what to do with them to exchange ideas. And um, at that point, I took a leap of faith, quit McGraw-Hill, retired to the ground floor of the Brownstone dusted off my T-square and drawing board that I hadn't used since mechanical drawing class at Springfield Technical High School and uh, started to produce a newsletter in the most basic form possible with uh, typewriter type and rubber cement paste-ups. 
and a lot of carbon paper. I asked, <laughs> I asked Patty, so when did, when did Clem hire you, Patty? And she said, he didn't hire me. I just bullied my way in there. <laughs> Patty, you want to tell that story? Yeah, well, I, was, I started subscribing in 1976, which is when I moved to Brooklyn from Manhattan. And um, we were putting my first husband through architecture school at Pratt. So we were fixing houses sort of, on, you know, under the table. And so I was a subscriber and I sort of decided that it was a very cool place and I wanted to work there. So I pretended that I was doing a story for Coalition Quarterly Magazine, which is the whole Earth Catalog people. And I had, you know, all of my um, steno notebook and everything. And I went to see Mr. Levine, as I called him, <laughs> Mr. Levine, um, and, you know, did a whole interview. And at the end of the interview, which he thought was for a magazine article, I said, I really want to work here. <laughs> and about four months later, he hired me. So <laughs> do you even remember that, Clem? I don't know. I, I remember it quite vividly oh, because <laughs> uh, Patty was the, the first job applicant uh, that had come our way, who seemed to be interested in the mission of the magazine and not just a paycheck. Uh, she had an enthusiasm and a vision and some experience that was uh, uh, quite astonishing in uh, my hiring experience to date. And uh, it turned out to be a most fortunate uh, liaison. So. Yeah. What Patty and I have in common is that she started subscribing to your newsletter, that hole-punched sort of yellowing paper newsletter in 1976. I began subscribing to that newsletter in 1983 when I moved into an old house, and the realtor gave it to me as a housewarming gift. That was my introduction to Old House Journal. Well, so the prevailing attitude in 1973 was that Victorian had cooties. If it wasn't colonial, it didn't count. I mean, so who came out of the woodwork, so to speak, to subscribe to the magazine if that was the if that was the prevailing attitude? My, I remember telling my my Irish grandmother that I have this job, and it was finally writing because I always wanted to be a writer. And I was trying to explain what it was, and she's listening, and she goes. You mean people buy old houses on purpose? <laughs> Being that only poor people bought old houses, if you had any money, you bought a new build. And if you bought an old house, the first thing you did was make it look like it was new. So she couldn't believe that I had found this ridiculous niche where it was people who wanted to buy an old house on purpose. And they were. They were most, they were, I think they were very coastal at the time. It was San Francisco. Um, Richard Rutlinger was the Clem Levine of San Francisco. He never started a magazine, but he was doing high Victorian, um, and and Clem was doing it on the East Coast. So that, that that was sort of the nexus, and then it sort of spread to Chicago and Minneapolis, and New England was still very interested in colonials, not so much in um, Victorian in those days. Yeah, the the median uh, subscriber was somebody who had a house built, you know, post-Civil War, some between the Civil War and 1920. You know, we, very few uh, real colonial house subscribers for OHA because there, there was material in the literature about restoring colonial houses, but the, this post-Civil War era up to the 1920s or World War II was, was totally you know, terra incognita. And that's what we were doing with the Old House Journal is sort of uh, by some of it trial and error, 
developing technology and uh, a vocabulary for dealing with houses of this of this age. You know, I'm so appreciative of that vocabulary that you guys invented because it, not only me, but other people look at something, they can't quite tell why they like it or identify it. And you gave us the words to do so. So there was a there was a housing boom in the early 1900s, particularly around 1920. Most A lot of arts and crafts. When did that catch on with your readers? We started covering craftsmen in, before I was there, early, early 70s, and then um, did an entire issue on the bungalow in the early 80s. It was called The Bungalow and Why We Love It So, and all the way through it was puns. But I think what we did that was most interesting is um, isolate all of the houses that we, and the, at the time, Clem and I called it post-Victorian architecture, because you didn't know what to call it. All of the books um, being published by, you know, James Marston Fitch and Henry Russell Hitchcock, they went from Frank Lloyd Wright in the Prairie School to international style, and nothing happened in between. And we're looking around, it's like everybody's living in Tudors and Dutch Colonials and these square houses, these cubic houses, and nobody knows what to call them. They're not Victorian. They're not arts and crafts. So what are they? And that's, Clem had this brilliant idea, honestly. He tried to get architectural historians to study it. And one after another, they're like, no, not interested. So we took builder's catalogs that he'd been collecting for years. We took them back to his dining room table and laid them all out and just started to isolate types. Do you remember that? Try I certainly that. do, right. And you go ahead and tell them the, the name that we introduced that now has millions of followers. Yes, the, the American Foursquare was the one that really uh, stood out to us because uh, it was totally ubiquitous in the American landscape. And uh, it was totally um, without a name. And the, one of the biggest question or the most frequent questions we would get at OHJ is from a new um, uh, buyer or owner of an old house. What style is my house? Everybody wanted to have a style name. And so that's what Patty and I were trying to do. And the, the thing that we came up with that is stuck the most is uh, this American Foursquare style, which is you see all over the landscape and uh, un until we had come up with the name and did a whole special issue on it. Uh, it, was, it was a style orphan. Well, I live in that style orphan, an American Foursquare. Didn't know what it was until I read Old House Journal in 1983. Mine happens to be a Sears kit house from 1926, the Gladstone model, which sold for $1,900. Are all the four squares Sears houses? Um, no. They're, Sears just uh, sort of seized upon uh, this basic type. It's a very economical uh, form for a house. You know, it's a square, you know, you've, it's a square frame with a hip roof. And uh, it, it doesn't require uh, an architect to build it. You, know, you just need a skilled you know, carpenter builder. And you can, you can deck it out with as many uh, uh, additional bells and whistles as you want. But it is a very economical, functional style of house, and, uh, which is why you, know, you, you see them all over. They, you know, Sears adopted it, but it was being built by 
just carpenter builders, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast. And it's got a great front porch. Right. And there are variants. I mean, in Kansas City, it's called the Kansas City Shirtwaist. In Denver, it's called the Denver Box. Horrible name. Um, a lot of the prairie schoolhouses are four square cubic in shape. But this, we were looking at a very specific thing, mostly done by builders, that was almost four square, many times because of the lot sizes. Um, the house is actually deeper than it is wide. But four rooms to a floor, hip roof, extra space with a dormer on top. And they did not exist in 1890, and by 1930 it was over. So there's this 40-year period where there are thousands of them, and every single town you go to, you find them, which is yep. amazing. Now, Clem, you told us that from about 1973, when Old House Journal was conceived, and 1986 was, this is your description, a do-it-yourself period when homeowners knew how to use tools, but that that's not so true today. You want to comment on that? Well, that at least is my impression. Um, the uh, If you compare the hardware store of 1973 to the hardware store today, everything is today is uh, a little functional package in plastic. And uh, whereas in, you know, in 1973, it was much more sort of, uh, individual, you know, nails, screws, washers, wrenches, and pliers, and it, it struck me and um, that the the typical homeowner today is, uh, uh, or at least old house buyer, is much more likely to have an architect and a designer, <laughs> and is not going to be um, uh, tackling the house with his or her own toolbox. They have more money than time. What do you think about that, Patty? Yeah, um, I agree in general, um, certainly about the hardware stores, which are just design centers now. I was shocked at how many people still said, oh, well, I do all my own electrical. I do my own plumbing. And I'm thinking it's not even legal. But we still do have do-it-yourselfers. And we're probably the last bastion <laughs> of people who still think they can do it. And a lot of sanding and painting and epoxy. Now, in addition to teaching people how to identify historic periods and architectural styles, i.e. what style is it? You also pointed people to the sources, the hard to find sources for replacement parts, salvaged parts. How'd you gather that information? It started with personal experience. We, we did a buyer's guide in 1976 for that very purpose because it's it's hard to imagine but it was a world without the internet you know if you needed a you know, replacement doorknob to match something that you were looking for uh, you could not google it and uh, say so we we put together of a you know an annual buyer's guide where we could just list all of the suppliers of historical products and index, you know, cross index that we could find. And it's a, the publication still exists, you know, the, as an annual to this day, I believe, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's gone through a lot of iterations called the lookbook. But here being modest, because we also created the restoration market. I mean, there, at the time, the first catalogs, we were finding basically um, old businesses in places like Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, who were still, you know, reglazing this or making mirrors or, you know, 
uh, replating hardware. But there was no restoration market. And two of the things that come to mind are um, classic accents, who you know came to Clem and said, what if we could create a push button light switch that was UL listed? Would people buy it? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> and then there was Bruce Bradbury, who um, you know went on to do Bradbury and Bradbury art wallpapers, a young man who he would just work until he fell apart, make enough money so that he could go to the V&A, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London and study aesthetic movement design. And he came and said, do you think people would buy Victorian wallpaper? Uh, in my early newsletter uh, of Old House Journal, I found a super duper paint stripper because I had all this historic millwork that had been painted over 15 times. Um, I was happy to find that in the early issues. Um, there was you know, another um, story along the lines of what Patty was just saying. Uh, in about 1976, we got a call at Old House Journal from a fellow who was buying uh, or thinking about buying a sheet metal stamping company. And their chief product was um, cemetery, temporary cemetery crosses that you would make in sheet metal until they, they installed a permanent uh, headstone. But in inventory, this company also had uh, the dies for making stamp metal ceilings. Could there possibly be a market for sheet metal ceilings? And we said, absolutely. And uh, it turns out, so he did go ahead. I'm sure he had other advisors on this, but uh, the sheet metal cross company or product is, uh, uh, I don't think still exists for them, but the, the stamp metal uh, ceilings proved to be a huge, a huge market for them. I see them a lot in uh, pizza parlors. So, Clem, you took Old House Journal from 1973 to 1986 and then handed it off to Patty, who then became owner, publisher, chief editor. You went on to launch traditional building magazine, which was, is a business to business publication. And then later period homes, but that's just all a preamble to ask the question, what are the milestones from 73 to 86? And then Patty from 86 to the current day, they must stand out in your mind. There's many, uh, OHJ milestones, including the, uh, world famous 10th anniversary uh, party that we threw, but um, the uh, the milestone that marked uh, the uh, start of traditional building uh, was actually a single uh, boozy evening in St. Louis, Missouri, that I spent with Gary Beam of St. Louis Antique Lighting and his wife, and uh, we, we were talking shop, and Gary made two points for, uh, in that evening, other than uh, discussing the music of Chuck Berry. Uh, the uh, first fact was uh, he found that a lot of his business was uh, being specified by architects and interior designers and contractors, uh, no longer just homeowners. 
And secondly, uh, a lot of the, uh, his product was going into new, new traditionally inspired construction, as well as restoration and renovation. And that, uh, having come out of the McGraw-Hill background of trade publications, you know, that suggested to me, you know, a, a, a trade publication aimed, you know, solely at the professional market and dealing not only with restoration, but with historically inspired new construction. Um, so then what'd you do in 1986, Patty? You're, you're left with Old House Journal. Clem rides into the sunset with traditional building. Was that a OMG moment? Well, yeah, there was a lot going on. But what was great is that, uh, you know, I kept doing Old House Journal as a consumer magazine. And by then it was a magazine. I mean, it had a color cover and, you know, it was distributed um, through newsstands. And Clem went on to the trade side. So we were always complimentary. You know, it was a it was a really nice evolution of the brand into covering both sides. When did it go from newsletter to glossy magazine? 1986, actually. Um, the first color cover is a picture of my brother, Bill, who was in college at the time, <laughs> painting, you know, a window on my Brooklyn limestone. And I, that was still black. I think it was still black and white inside. We didn't go color inside until 1987. That was one of the major milestones for Old House Journal, but because for many years we had not taken advertising because there wasn't that much advertising around. And then... Um, about 1984, Patty and I began to realize, you know, that there was a, uh, a growing commercial market uh, that was reflected, among other ways, in uh, in adver- magazine advertising. And we weren't getting any of it. <laughs> and, and we were not getting any of it. And we realized that if you were if we were going to do that, if we were going to go after the uh, advertising to support the growth of the publication we would have to transition from newsletter to a, a regular magazine with color. January of 1986 was the first issue in, in magazine format. But the blowback was horrific. Because of the advertising? The holes. Bring back the holes. Oh, the holes. Oh. Because, you know, for people who didn't remember the newsletter days, it was punched with three holes that you could put in a three-ring binder. And the issues were sequentially paginated. So that January would start with page one, and by December you were on page 275 or something, three-hole punched binder, and keep it that way. And so everybody had them on the bookshelves. So who were your early advertisers? Classic Accents. The Tin Roof Company, Baldwin Hardware. Um, Ball and Ball, and A.A. Uh, a. Abingdon. and A.A. Abington made the tin ceilings, yep. Abitron and... Uh... Rejuvenation. Sure. Renovator Supply. Charles Street Supply. (laughs) The the plaster washer company. There's a hardware store in Boston, of all things. And they made the little washers that you use to um, tie, you know, plaster that was falling away from the lath. You push it back. And they were doing, they were selling them in a dozen at a time through our magazine and sort of became the plaster washer people of the generation. (laughs) So often on the occasion of an anniversary, like Old House Journal's 50th, we look ahead to try to predict what might happen in the next 50 years. Either of you want to share your crystal ball vision? 
Well, uh, I'm looking at it from uh, a great distance now. So uh, Patty is much more uh, attuned to uh, what is happening in the real world. The one thing that I have noticed to my dismay is uh, the in, in the Brooklyn market especially is um, styles tend to swing generation to generation. And right now, Victorian is going out of style in Brooklyn brownstones. And the, the realtors who are uh, selling uh, Brooklyn brownstones now, the first thing they do is make sure that the entire interior is painted white again. And uh, mid-century modern is back. And um, Victorian and brown furniture tends to be out. I think it's changing. We're back into a lull of modernization. Or I, I understand I have to keep the outside looking a certain way because of the historic district. But inside, I'm going to do my own thing. The difference is, and Pat, Pete and I talk about this all the time, we went through this lull where Gen X was so small and nobody was buying houses. And there was, just, there was a trough. And now the millennials actually are buying houses in great numbers at a later age than Clem, Clem or me when we bought our houses. But they are doing it. And since there's such a huge generation, there's room for a lots of niches within that. So yeah, the HGTV people painting everything white and gray, they exist. But I am seeing a contingent of people between, I'd say, 28 and 45 right now who actually want the house to look old and they use things like, I want the charm and character, you know. So I think I think there is a niche again that is growing just because of demographics. Yes, well, there there was one new um, uh, design term that is not traditional, but uh, draws on all of the um, historical techniques and uh, ornament that uh, Patty and I have been talking about for 50 years, and that's maximalist decoration. It, <laughs> and it's very cutting edge in some areas, but you look at it and, oh my God, it's they're reinventing, you know, essentially the Victorian idea of um, if if a little is good, more is better. Too much of a good thing can be wonderful, said Mae West. Well, I think then the three of us should form a maximalist club because in my observation, having been in all of our respective houses, we're all maximalists. Although I think, Patty, you're starting to, with, with good influence from your son, you're starting to clear some things out. Right outside this window, there's a dumpster. <laughs> but it's mostly, it's mostly, you know, my checking account stubs from the 1970s that are going into it. It's not furniture. <laughs> I have a question for Clem. Who is Chester? Chester? Well, uh, I am, and, and as Patty is, uh, an animal lover. And th there have been a series of uh, office mascots uh, through the years. And one of the early ones was Chester, the, the office tabby cat, who first appeared uh, outside of 69A 7th Avenue in, uh, that was then the headquarters of Old House Journal. Every photo shoot that was ever done, Chester had to be in it. He really he was part of the- Part of the staff. 
Chester was still there when I left for Gloucester. Yeah. So one last question. You must have thought to yourselves, man, 50 years, 50 years of old house journal, something that we created back in the early seventies. Where's all the time gone? Yeah. Did you have any other sort of epiphanies or reminiscences thinking this over? I certainly, when started out, never thought that I was, you know, starting something that would last 50 years. I just wanted to, I wanted it to last long enough so I could finish my house. But it turned out I was working on the house for 50 years anyway. So the, but the, the other um, uh, thought that has come to me is when I was a young whippersnapper, just starting out in restoration, um, the uh, ICA, which the the classical institute was just starting. And there was a seminar uh, that uh, featured a uh, a very old fella who was the last living uh, apprentice from Taliesin and who had studied with Frank Lloyd Wright. And he was up there on the stage and he was had a little shaky and, but, you know, he had to be helped up onto the stage and his voice was a little, you know, cracking, but he was, you know, had many interesting stories to tell of the old days. And it suddenly occurred to me that, I am now the old fella on that stage. <laughs> well, little... <laughs> your voice isn't cracking. You know, nobody had to help you up on the stage. Yeah, how about you, Patty? What has struck you uh, as you think back? Well, I, one of the reasons, I mean, I did love old houses ever since I was a kid, and I did work on them. So there was a reason to be there. But I honestly thought it would be a stepping stone to my real thing, which was I was going to um, – be a writer and photographer for National Geographic magazine and live in a townhouse in Georgetown. Where you get these ideas when you're 20 years old, I don't know, but I did. Um, And instead, what happened is I just discovered that both magazine publishing as a career was wonderful and old houses and restoration preservation was wonderful. So I had two careers. Old house people want to fix something up and leave it better than they found it. They want to do a good job themselves. They're interested in their piece of um, history and making it better. And like I said, leaving it better than they found it. I've never met somebody in this field that I didn't like. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There, There is something about, um, there's something nurturing about people who love old houses and who want to restore them. And it's a, they tend to be nurturing, kind, loving people. Yeah. And nice to be with. So fixing up an old house, maintaining an old house, improving an old house is never really done. So the the idea of nurturing that old house is very on point. Well, we're out of time, but this has been fun. Thank you, Clem Labine. Thank you, Patty Poor, for founding and creating such a wonderful magazine. And once again, congratulations on your fiftieth anniversary of Old House Journal. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. And I must also say thank you to Patty because um, she has taken what was a very 
tiny baby and <laughs> grown it into you know a wonderful magazine that is uh, uh, I'm very proud to have been associated with at one point. So thank you, Pete, and thank you, Patty. This has been fun. It has been. I'm Pete Miller, and you're listening to Building Tradition, brought to you by Traditional Building Magazine. Subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you.